Oh, we didn't have a countdown. <laughs> oh, it didn't work? Are we, are we like live now? We're live and we didn't have a countdown. Sorry. <laughs> I was sitting, sitting here, I was like, wait, I was like, okay, I gotta. Like, yeah, no, that's my, that's my error. Oh, Bitcoin bear market blues. <laughs> oh, no, I can hear myself. <laughs> oh, there you go. Have it on. Um, hello, everybody. And everybody. The, probably nobody at this point. So we're just talking to ourselves, but that's fine. Um, since we didn't have a countdown, should we do our little, um, I still haven't fixed the end bit of it, which is a bit annoying, but, um, we might as well go for it and then right. just be prepared for the jolt at the it's end. Jolting and <laughs> it's funny that you, like, you, you don't know that that's a thing until you see it and then you're like, oh, yeah, that, that <laughs> I'm going to fix that. That's, that's my new year's resolution. I'm going to fix the ending of our opener, but here, here it goes. There we go. That's the uh, that's the jolt. So, uh, how was your New Year? Good. Good. We ended up uh, going way up to the Northeast. I was in Connecticut. We went from Connecticut to New York to New Jersey to Pennsylvania for Christmas in the Northeast and uh, New Year's in Pennsylvania, and we had a lot of fun. Good, good, good. We we've, we've had um, we had a massive uh, warming uh, situation in Europe, so there was no snow, and it was. Um, very mild, which was great for NATO. Not so good for skiing, but you know. We had the opposite. We had a giant cold snap here. So. Well, this is why I suspect there's a weather machine at play that has sucked this all the cold air. Just like doing opposites. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, sucks all the cold air from Europe and sticks it into America. Yeah, but we we came home, and I uh, definitely ended up a little under the weather. I don't know what oh, happened. No. Something bronchial. Was coughing for days, not feeling great, but I'm back mostly. About 80, 89%, I think. I don't know anyone who didn't have a bronchial uh, situation over Christmas. Every, Apart from me, no, I was fine. Every time I talked to somebody, they would be like, they, I would describe it. I'd be like, I was like, you know, coughing up green stuff. And it was just like, you know, I would describe it. And then like 12 other people in the room would be like, oh, yeah, I had that same thing. Weird. And it was like really common. Which is really weird because I'm usually the first to fall, and yet I was fine. Our whole that's family was fine. you got COVID fine. eight times, so you're now a superhuman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, all that bat virus in me. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, this session, I think we're going to keep it tight this time. We're not going to go on forever. But there's been a lot happening yeah. over... Oh, hang on. I must uh, take off my alerts. Um, so there's been a lot happening since the last one we've done. And I thought it might be worth just catching up on everything that's been happening in crypto because there's been so much. And frankly, as someone who sits between the two worlds of crypto and conventional finance, I kind of uh, there's been so much SBF news. I just can't keep up. There's every day that there's some sort of element that and it doesn't seem like the story is really moving on that much. It's just today he's posted a big um, sub stack sort of justifying everything. 
you know, he claims he, he was not a fraudster, he didn't steal anyone's money, and he doesn't really have access to all the information. He's frozen out. So it's it's basically like a Columbo deduction of what happened. It's it's his Agatha Christie analysis. Um and it's funny, um it's funny when you look at it because like there's a lot of things in that stuff that's gonna play very poorly in front of a jury. Like they had that channel called Money Laundering, I think it was, where they were discussing a lot of this stuff. Oh, they actually had a channel yeah, called yeah, Money Yeah, yeah, it was called, like, like I mean, I'm, I'm sure they were joking, but, like, that's not going to play well in front of, like, a jury of your peers. That's no. going to be a terrible thing to explain to them. Like, there's a lot what? of stuff in this that is just, like, really bad for him. And not just that, he stole customer funds. He may not have, like, thought that was fraud, but it was. And there's a reason it's fraud. Well, he claims he didn't steal customer funds, that what happened no. was basically a market crash that um undermined his uh, asset you know mm -hmm. asset base he goes on and on in the in the piece about how uh, beginning of 2022 he had about 100 billion worth of assets and he took out a loan of 8 billion most of that was to to buy out his uh, to buy out binance from ftx and then i can't remember what the other two bits were for there were three main bits that he was using the loan for and uh, and he's he sort of explains that you know any anyone would have seen this as entirely justifiable because it was you know um 100 billion 8 billion of 100 billion is totally fine <clears throat> but of course this is a bit silly because it's not conventional 100 billion valuation it's it's, it's actually even worse than a penny stock valuation like the, the the assets you know back in the global financial crisis we were you know, the banks had to label their asset bases as either level one, level two, level three, based on their liquidity. And I think this was like level 42 or something. I mean, it's not it's not comparable. And if you think that, that, that you can just apply standard risk models to crypto, I think you're mad. So he obviously didn't have a good understanding of risk. I, I think you're wrong. I think you can apply standard risk models to crypto. And the, the result is if you do, if you apply standard risk models and you go way out on the risk curve, you are, you go bankrupt, which is yeah. why every time in crypto, people think that the, the bull run is going to go forever. It's going to go forever. You're playing hot potato and then it turns just as quickly because this is like, you know, this is the most volatile asset that's ever been created. Uh, it's current. In, in my opinion, Bitcoin is currently underway to monetize. It is uh, working toward it's it's exercising to become the world's greatest money. That is my opinion on it. And uh, and as it does that, it's going to be highly, highly volatile, like any new asset ever would be. So it's it's a super volatile asset. It's going to remain volatile for a long time. And applying these risk models to it means that you have to go way out on the risk curve and you have to anticipate huge drawdowns and huge upticks. And if you don't, you're going to screw yourself. And, yeah. uh, and if, you're, if you're an old Bitcoiner who's been trying to like play the markets, you know this because... You know, every few years you're rich, and then for four, three or four years you're poor, and then in three or four years you're rich, and then in three or four years you're poor again, and uh, and that's what happens, and that's just the price you pay. I heard someone say it the other day. It's the price you pay for the world's uh, best performing asset. But I still find it fascinating that despite all this, like hundred billion dollars worth of, of of you know collateral and assets that he had, um, he wasn't able. To, he still had to borrow liquidity to pay for to buy himself out of the Binance thing and also for his venture investments. So he was basically, and from what I understand, he was 
was borrowing from like um, crypto type people. So he wasn't borrowing from like a conventional lender, right? Well, well um, Isabel, like, like the weird thing about the crypto market this last time is that they discovered lending, right? And like the traditional markets work on lending, which is fine. But what happens when you have a bunch of people who are as far out on the risk curve as they possibly can be all lending to each other? Yeah. Like I've, I've never, I never thought that was a question we needed to consider because it's absurd. No. And, and yet here we are needing to ask why the hell they were all lending to each other because that's what happened they were all as far out on the risk curve as possible they were all playing games like they were pretending like they were real banks and real big boys and they got screwed and they screwed a lot of people but in sam's in sam's uh case he stole customer funds and it's obvious well why do you say because he's very intent on saying that he did not so why do you think he did because he did you think because he took customer money and malinvested it, that is a, a, equivalent to stealing customer funds? Yeah, that's what the, mm. that's the definition of stealing customer funds. Like that. Well, is, not, not if you have like, the intention to to you know, to, it's a custodial issue. It's, okay, it's, fine. It's, he mixed customer funds, yeah. and that's illegal. Yeah, you're and not. Then he lost, and then he lost them. So like, uh, maybe he didn't steal them. Maybe he mixed them and lost them. Uh, it's like letting your friend well, borrow in, your car in his substack. He, he blames he blames it all on the liquidators, and he says that he got locked out of his accounts, and um, and he he's very adamant that had he been given two more weeks, he could have raised the li- liquidity to make everybody um, yeah, good. Because, well, that's because he's a that's because he uh, is a compulsive gambler. So I'm just telling like, you, I'm just repeating okay, his, but, you know, his look, defense. If you, if, if you give me all of your money, I will make, I will 10 exit in two months. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's obviously you, to, you know, as well as I do that, the proposition that he could have gotten the money all back within a few months is the same thing as saying I was going to take inordinate risk and that risk I believe would have worked out. Yeah. I mean, he's being delusional. Absolutely. But, um, I'm just, maybe he's not crypto's weird. Like, Maybe he could have, but not because like he didn't get lucky. He would have, he would have just gotten lucky. He blames a whole plethora of um, factors. Uh, obviously, the market crash, Luna, um, the Fed rate hike. He actually says uh, there's a big chunk in there talking about how um, you know suddenly the, the market went from having lots of spare liquidity and being able to lend to having none, which I find very interesting that the Fed rate hike would have zapped all the liquidity liquidity of crypto it does make sense but it's amazing to me that someone of his apparent like brain level didn't realize that that was coming (laughs) given that the market had been flagging a rate rise for months and months um and yeah and so he is justifying on that front and what was the other interesting thing he said it'll come to me but yeah no potato potato Stealing I mean, customer yeah, funds, yeah. mingling. Right, right. I mean, fine. Like commingling customer funds into accounts they're not supposed to be in is highly illegal. It's problematic. Maybe it's not uh, literal stealing where he put it in his pocket and ran away, but it sure it sure has the same outcome. Especially and- again, when you're out on the risk curve that far, what do you expect? Like people got to realize, like this is the, the what what happens in banking and like actually this is this is great if you want it, there's a new netflix show on madoff right and they talk to uh markopolis and markopolis talks about this trading strategy that he comes up with 
to uh, to counter Madoff's strategy. And he says the best he could do was he came up with a strategy where basically you'd win like 500, or you'd win five times more than you'd lose. But when you lose, the drawdown of the account was like 60% or something right. absurd, right? So that's the thing. When you're like way out on the risk curve, you end up with these incredible drawdowns. It's necessary because you're compensated. You have to be compensated for the risk that you carry, right? Mm -hmm. And so like in the case of someone like SBF, like most of crypto actually doesn't seem to understand this reality that you get compensated yeah. for the risk that you carry, which means that they think that it's normal to get like one or two or three or 4% returns per month. And if you are getting one or two or 3% or 4% returns a month, there is a risk that you are carrying to get that return. And part of that is going to be massive drawdowns. Yeah, no free lunch. But I think that that lesson was forgotten a little bit. The other thing he mentioned. I don't think, is they, that... I don't think they know the lesson. <laughs> I, I, honestly, these are not, these are not smart people. I think SBF is a young kid who really doesn't know or understand those lessons. I think he's literally a compulsive gambler. I suspect you're right. Um, the other thing he is, he is very intent on um, saying is that FTX US, he believes was solvent and he doesn't understand why they haven't made the customers good. In his opinion, the liquidity was there to um, cover everybody's um, claims. So he's blaming some sort of conspiracy theory by, I don't know, he names some other institution in there that um, he thinks has created a conflict for the liquidators. Um, I mean, maybe, or, or maybe it's just that like the only way they're going to recover anything is by combining everything. And I, I don't mean like, I don't know what the structure of their, their stuff was, but when you look at a chart, that's got like 72 organizations on it, all of which yeah. seem to be like tax type shelter companies. It's very difficult for me to not think that this is a complex structure where everything is actually intermingled. Additionally, the way that he intermingled funds with Alameda and everything else, like I think that they're probably piercing the corporate veil in some sense. Like this is not a normal company with normal accounts where the accounts are not completely intermingled. It's very obvious. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um well, he also says, like, you know, he he was not involved in Alameda for, like, two years, he says. He had no idea. He wasn't running it. Didn't know what was going on. Sure. So Caroline I mean, obviously didn't tell him nice. anything. I, I wonder who's giving him advice to, like, put out this info. It seems very bad. Um, <laughs> he said a lot of things, and I think he said a lot of contradictory things. Like, what do you do when you go to court and you're in front of the court and they ask you about two contradictory things you said in public and then ask you to resolve them? And then the follow-up question is, because you're going to resolve them to the one that is more positive for yourself, then the follow-up question is, how can we possibly believe you? You've said both things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Are you a liar? Yeah, you are. Yes, obviously. You lied at least on one of them, you know? And it seems like your story has been getting better and better and better for you, but, like, it, it doesn't seem like that was a story you were telling at the beginning. Or maybe maybe it was, but now, you know, it's a different story or something, but... Like he's not an, he's, he's not proven to be honest, by the way, Isabel, I don't know if you know this, this is my kitchen in the bear market. Um, we can't, we can't afford, uh, nice things anymore because Bitcoin's way down. And I put all of our money into Solana. Uh Oh, just changing the banner, making oh. sure it's clear what's going on. Ooh, have fun staying poor. I am poor. Give me money, please. 
<laughs> so um, let's move on a little bit because there's been um, speculation, I think, about what's going on with Coinbase. I think when we look at, um, you know, the Coinbase situation, apparently, you know, we've had, what's his face, uh, Armstrong coming out, um, claiming everything is brilliant. The and then they should be regulated. They're fully audited. They're they're a listed company at, company now. But the share price is saying something else, right? So, well, actually, it's up today. But um, everything was up today, so it doesn't really count. I mean, the share price. I'm gonna get. It, I'll get it up. Um, it's pretty scathing. So, what do you think is the situation with Coinbase? I think I think that nobody uh, has. I mean, it's it's not. It's rather opaque to know what's going on inside of one of these companies, but. You know, I think the story of this bear market is that all of the companies that people were denigrating and thought had exposure, um, a lot of them seem to have been operated well. Even these, uh, as we call them, shitcoin casinos like Coinbase, where they allow you to buy all of this crap, all of these, you know, what I would call Ponzi schemes. And uh, they let you buy them. And yet somehow Coinbase seems to have avoided giving all of their money to Three Arrows Capital and uh, giving all of their, you know, putting putting uh, trading accounts and stuff into Genesis, whereas Gemini, uh, uh, you know, they got some they got some issues, and uh, I think the Genesis stuff is is also like really interesting as Genesis, like I think the Genesis lending program was what what Genesis or was what Gemini was using, so if you were in that product, I think now there's a lot of questions as to like what's going on with your coins, and that's really interesting that a company like Gemini would have that issue. Given given their prominence in the industry, and the belief that they're such good actors, uh, it's it just goes to show that like th there is no understanding in this industry of risk bifurcation. Um, these companies are taking on risks that they really shouldn't, and they're commingling risks that they shouldn't be commingling. So if you're a bank and uh, you're lending out on this highly volatile asset, unless you're highly good at liquidating, unless you're liquidating quickly and stuff, uh, and and kind of mean to your customers. Uh, ruthless liquidations as uh, like like what happens at like unchained capital you, you're putting a lot of stuff at risk additionally if you're lending big amounts of money to companies like you know three arrows capital and such there's a huge huge risk to your to your overall business it appears and that's what's going on so it's a really really weird industry and i think that what's going to happen is we're going to see uh, a, a split up of the risk models in this industry. I think like an Unchained Capital, which primarily does loans, is a very different business than say a Coinbase, which primarily does trading. So you, you're fairly confident that Coinbase will withstand the, the crypto winter? Well, I, I don't ever make predictions about who's gonna withstand, but like I, I would say that the story so far of this stuff has been that the, the, the stuff that like is actually being regulated seems to have done okay. The stuff that's acquiesced to regulation has done pretty well. And and uh, the people that have been around a long time and demonstrated competency to not go bankrupt in these rises have also gone have navigated the waters here pretty well, other than maybe Genesis, uh, Genesis being the exception. But for the most part, like the, the stuff that's going bankrupt are the new new guys. I remember FTX when it came out. I was a little bit it was in that like, what's the meme? Uh, I'm, I, I just heard about FTX and or I, I don't know what FTX is and I'm, at this point I'm, a, I'm too afraid to ask. You know what I mean? So yeah, time, I had the I, same I, thing. I think we've discussed time, this before. Yeah, the first time I ever heard of FTX was when they bought a stadium. I'd never heard of them. And all of a sudden FTX is buying buying Miami Stadium. And I'm just like, okay, like that's that that's weird. They're that big. 
and I'd never heard of them. Where did they come from? And I come to find out that you know FTX really didn't. It, well, they weren't they weren't around for very long before they bought the stadium. It was pretty much the first thing they did. They like took their venture money and they bought a stadium. And honestly, probably the best advertising anyone's ever gotten from buying a stadium. It gave them immense amount of credibility. It made them look like they were here a lot longer. And Sam Bankman Freed, a 12 year old child was at the head of the exchange and everybody was sitting there like watching him do his thing and uh, and and not and, and, and presuming that he was somehow like the new JP Morgan. Meanwhile, the people like, and this is what really bothers me about the media on this stuff. Meanwhile, the people that have been here a long time, there, there are men in underwear sitting in their mother's basement who have more money or who have, who have quite a bit of money. They've collected a lot of Bitcoin over the years and know more about this, these products than any of the people on MSNBC. And that's kind of the issue for these, these organizations trying to find competent people is that the competent, the competentest people are the, the worst ones to put on air other than maybe like a Jack Mahler's. So two things. First of all, mumbling bearded freak who is watching us. Thank you for watching us. We appreciate it. Um, says that, that he can only hear you in his left ear, Josh. I can hear you fault. perfectly. I don't know why he only can hear you in his left ear. If anyone else is having a problem only hearing Josh in their left ear, let me know. We'll see if it's if it's just a unique situation. I can hear Josh fine, so I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, Probably a streamyard issue. Yeah, maybe. Se secondly, um, I think on Coinbase, there are, you know, in some ways, the regulatory sort of situation, the fact that they are listed should reassure. But at the same time, Enron was, you know, a listed regulated entity. So I'm not sure, you know, that this, a lot of this stuff is so new um, from the, in, in, I would actually imagine like conventional auditors might struggle to understand the valuation of these assets and the jargon and the terminology. And even if you get relatively, you know, expert ones, things could easily be, um, you know, they're not dealing with, with a usual kind of corporate co structure or company. So I suspect, I don't know, my my reading of the Coinbase figures is that they are going to have a very tough tough time in a high interest rate environment, in, an, in a down market. And I wonder to what degree they're, you know, they appear to have, an internalized hedge fund like i don't think it's a i don't think it's an alameda hedge fund but there is definitely some liquidity provision being handled on the in internal side and they're very clear about that in their in their results they say that they have a you know they either take agency risk or principal risk they take both so they are taking principal risk which su suggests to me that their clients are trading with them which which exposes equally um you know similar type conflicts of interest as we had in FTX. That's all I was uh, Well, yeah, it, it can. Um, the, the difference, the difference being that, you know, if they're, if they're trading, like using the knowledge internally and, you know, pumping the price, I mean, there's a big difference, Isabella, which is that FTX relied mostly on uh, its own liabilities. So FTX issued liabilities to itself of its own self, which is really weird. Like if Coinbase made Coinbase the coin and then uh, primarily held that as like evidence that they were solvent, then they would be similar to FTX. So apparently 
your the left ear thing is a phenomenon it is happening with more than just one person and the the conclusion is that either your headphones are busted or maybe all of you have busted headphones <laughs> well anyway i don't know i'm let me pull you out of the stream and bring you back maybe that will help test test okay now maybe maybe that help maybe not well, even in one ear, I mean, I hear you perfectly, but maybe, maybe you know, maybe maybe there's a setting or something like that that we got to figure out. But I, I apologize, everybody. I'm better in stereo than in mono. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll be happy to learn he's not had a stroke. That's very good. <laughs> um, so anyway, going back to what we were talking about, you were gonna. So the purpose of today's. Um, podcast really is to educate me in what the hell is going on with gbtc i'm very unfamiliar i'm continuously confusing genesis for gemini like why do they both have to have very similar names that make me think of star well, one trek is, one but, is a twin you know the, the, the constellation of the twins and it's a company run by twins yeah i know but that like as a dyslexic it, it's hard it's difficult <laughs> so so Go on. So let's talk, GBT, let's talk GBTC. Yeah, so GBTC tell me been, everything about GB. Like, who is GBTC? Where they come from? What the structure is? What the problems is? It's a closed end sure. fund, right? Yeah. So GBT, yeah, GBTC is a closed end trust. It's been around for a very long time, um, and it was established basically by Barry Silbert uh, many years ago in order to uh, allow exposure in traditional markets to Bitcoin. So I remember when it was launched. Um, I I always thought it was a ridiculous product. I know I am not a trader or a financier. So I don't understand a lot of these products. The reason I thought it was ridiculous is because um, it always traded to a giant premium to NAV. And I don't mean like a little premium. It was a giant premium, like 1000 X to NAV kind of thing. Like you buy, you buy a Bitcoin worth and you have like one 1,000th of the Bitcoin, right? Like that was, that was the uh, essentially what GBTC did. So that was always ridiculous to me. But what I didn't realize was that the the money making side of that? What people were doing was inserting coins into GBTC, and then they would get their shares, and then six months when they became uh, solvent, um, they would be tradable, and they would trade out of GBTC with that massive gain, and they. Would... So this this was the so called GBTC arbitrage, right? Yes. And everybody yeah. was talking about that, and that involved and there were a lot of people doing it, mm -hmm. and uh, and you would you would just you would massively increase your coin holdings by doing it. I didn't know that you could do it. I, I would have done it. That would have been great. Uh, but I, I, I knew nothing of that. But there was a risk so. to it. It wasn't the same arbitrage that you have with ETFs. Well, it's not arbitrage because it's certainly not riskless. But like this is what <laughs> happened is in this in the in the last bubble, a huge portion of uh, the premiums that were being promised, a lot of the yield that was being promised in places like BlockFi was apparently coming from this uh, model where they would uh, insert coins into GBTC and then sell them at a giant premium. And then they would give customers like a portion of that premium back. So basically BlockFi was a way for the average person to do that. And what and happened who was buying these coins at a premium? Well, no one was buying them. Oh, I mean, I don't know, but people were putting them like in their Roth IRAs and such. I see. And that Kathy Wood was a big holder, wasn't she? I don't know if she was early on. I, I think that was more recent. Okay. So what happens is as more and more more and more money came in, the discount to NAV uh, or the, the premium started to shrink, started to shrink, and then all of a sudden one day flipped and has been at a discount to NAV now for a couple of years. And it started at like 5% and it was, wasn't a big deal. 
But then the other day, it got to around 50% a couple of weeks ago. So uh, GBTC has been at a 50% discount, meaning that it, you know if you buy, if Bitcoin's at 16,000, you're essentially buying $8,000 Bitcoin in GBTC. But the risk is that it never returns and you're never able to like redeem that money. Uh, so what's happened now, There's a, there was a lot of speculation at the time, particularly with Alameda, that GBTC somehow had exposure to that. Um, I think you yourself were telling me that you thought they probably had exposure. And uh, and it was a very common uh, mantra in the industry. People thought that they might and that GBTC might somehow be insolvent. It was very scary if you were a holder. I actually sat with my wife and told her, like, we may lose a lot of money. I don't know. I don't think we will, but it's possible. <laughs> and so, like, had to have that conversation. And uh, because I'm, I'm a, you know, a big investor in, in GBTC. So that was uh, that was a conversation that I had to have for that reason. Yeah. What is that? What did you, you whispered something. I said um, you are a GBTC bag holder. Yeah, but well, if if it's a bag holder, right? Um, are you so held? Been... So what is the current situation? Because like you were very optimistic in oh, yeah. December, yeah, but now was... it looks like haven't. Can you explain the relationship between GB? Why why are the Gemini people upset about it? What's going on there? Well, the Gemini people, uh, I don't think they're upset necessarily about GBTC, but they're upset about DCG generally because I think they took out a loan oh. from uh, DCG. So and DCG is the parent company of yeah, yeah. GBTC. Okay. Yeah, or they took it from Genesis who like I, the, 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 the structure of all this is very difficult. I don't really understand it completely. I'd have to like look at a chart, but uh, DCG, I think like Barry and DCG own uh, a big portion of Genesis and the Bitcoin trust. The difference is that they're separate products. Everything's done supposedly at an arm's length. Um, none of the assets are encumbered with one another um, or, or intermingled or whatever. So hopefully that, that that's the case, but uh, GBTC is a trust, right? So presumably all of the coins in the trust are both unencumbered and uh, unable to just simply be removed for any reason. So, you know uh, that that's the, the GBTC situation. I, I thought probably just given Barry's history was uh probably fine and it seems so far to have been fine and i, I you know like I, i'm not encouraging anyone to take the bet but at a 50 percent discount for someone like me it was very attractive because i i really do think that uh, gbtc is fine so the latest headlines on it well there was a reflection note from barry silbert the other day what was that or about kumbaya -y. i don't know uh barry barry releases like kumbaya sort of like we all got to come together i don't know why he did it um I think I think it's because as the discount to NAV has de has has increased, which for someone like me, like if if GBTC is solvent, if GBTC is all you know, the, if it's in good straits, like in good condition, like I think it is, uh, it's an amazing bet, right? It's an amazing opportunity. Basically, you're getting uh, a huge amount of alpha, and that's what we're seeing in, like right now. Like uh, as Bitcoin's been going up the last week, uh, Bitcoin's up about two thousand dollars in the last week. Uh, GBTC has both gone up and reduced the discount. So, you know, yeah. with Bitcoin so this, up like this happened on the 9th of January. So there was some deadline. The world's biggest Bitcoin fund, this is according to Bloomberg, outperformed other risk assets Monday as a weekend deadline for its parent company came and went without any fireworks. The 10.7 billion grayscale Bitcoin trust saw 12% uh, to start the week. It's largest one day jump since February 2022. The fund has done better than Bitcoin itself of late, narrowing the discount to its net asset value to 44% from a record 49% reached last and, and month. And it's, today it's around 36%. So it, you can see 
um, there's a giant boost in like both the closing of the premium and in uh, the price. And but so this deadline was to publicly commit to working together to fix what Winklevoss yeah it's a fake deadline, is a though, 900 like million hole created by crypto lender Genesis yeah it's a complete also owned by halting redemptions in November Isabella because like it's just a, a deadline that like one's imposed on the other it's not like they are like giving up rights to sue or something like that because if if neither party meets the deadline but where's this capital hole so what happened why is there why is there a capital hole. I think it, I'm guessing that the capital hole is probably from Gemini lending, uh, which was using the Genesis product, but I, I'm not sure. Or either that or Gemini has taken a loan out of, uh, took a loan itself out of uh, Genesis or something. So there's some kind of, there's some kind of capital hole there that seems uh, problematic. I don't know exactly the details of it though. Well, there seems to be concern that Genesis would file for bankruptcy. Yes. That possibility was raised by the crypto bro brokerage itself uh, in seeking to raise fresh capital in November. That's fueled concerns over the health of parent DCG and the future of Grayscales. But so Genesis is the brokerage. Yeah. DCG is the parent, and the trust mm -hmm. is theoretically segregated from all it, that. It is segregated. I mean, like, this is the thing. Like, th this is, it, it seems like a bunch of people fudding a, a bunch of things. Like, Genesis can certainly go bankrupt. There's no reason it can't. Uh, it's a different risk and business model than uh, the trust or DCG generally. Uh, a parent company can have companies go bankrupt all the time. Like that's totally fine. That does not encumber any of the other companies in that parent company. That does. That's just not how that works. And I don't know what children are writing these articles that seem to think that everything is commingled and intermingled. It's just not how it works. These people don't know how companies work. They're 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 very stupid. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of confusion because, quite frankly, the entire space is very convoluted, right? Um, it, well, it, the entire space is run by kids. So, like, you know, that's that's the thing. When you get a, a child running uh, an enormous bank operation like FTX, what you end up with is this really weird situation where you have a person who both doesn't understand the risk that he's putting his company under. He doesn't understand risk bifurcation. He doesn't understand uh, – he doesn't understand – like not mingling funds. He doesn't know the rules. Like he doesn't understand that the things he's about to do are highly illegal. He doesn't know those things. Like I can believe that SBF had no idea that what he was doing is illegal. I can believe that in full because he is a child and he doesn't know the rules. Meanwhile, he's trying to play big boy games and uh, he, he's playing big boy games in you know, Bermuda or, you know, uh, wherever Nassau, wherever he was. And uh, he doesn't know how to play big boy games because he's not a big boy. Right, exactly. So generally speaking, your assessment is that GBTC is probably going to be okay. It's segregated. Even if Genesis goes down, it should, in theory, because it's a trust, um, be okay at the moment, betting on well, it. If, if it's not okay, Barry's going to jail. That, that would be my assessment. And at the moment, it looks like yeah, anyone who bought it earlier this week would have benefited from a little rally so um not a little rally <laughs> it's not a little rally it's a huge rally i mean like if you bought like i was so here's here's the thing i in my own portfolio isabella like i execute a sort of swing trade strategy um Ooh. i'm very much into momentum uh i have a very well balanced uh sharp ratio good sharp ratio portfolio uh i mix in a sounds kind of kinky it is a little kinky uh this is actually <laughs> When I'm getting with my wife, these are the words that I use. So I, uh, I tell her about our, 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 our well-adjusted portfolio and uh, the great sharp ratio that we've achieved 
with our portfolio and uh, I trade momentum. So like for someone like me, the beauty of like the, the deep, deep discount was that um, I was certainly acquiring GBTC all the way down, but my biggest buys were at the very, very bottom when it was at like a 48% discount. I was buying the most then. Right. Okay. So looks like an interesting trade. So um, you have It'll a be the best trade of my life, I think, if, if it works out. What's going on with Binance? What's your assessment of Binance at this point? Oh, man. Binance, like, again, a lot of these guys are playing in these weird markets. Like, Binance, the question is going to be how tight are, how, how tight are they with, like, uh, CCP? Um, what, what is the game they're actually playing? Like, here's, here's the thing in crypto. I think that a lot of this internet, the fact that crypto is very international means that I don't think we necessarily know as entrepreneurs what other, what the game is that other, uh, other entrepreneurs in the space are playing, right? So if you think that like you're, that Binance is merely a competitor, you might be right, but you might also not realize that you're actually competing with like an unlimited money supply supplied by the CCP, right? That, that might also be true. I don't know. Um, so Binance, uh, I think the U.S. regulators have been claiming that they're under investigation for something, but I think that's basically been true of Binance in its entire history. It's not like CZ is going to acquiesce and give in to, uh, you know, caring what the U.S. regulators say. It's like if the U.K. put me under some kind of uh, supervision saying that I was going to be, you know, regulated personally or uh, or looked into personally, I just wouldn't care, right? Because uh, what, what jurisdiction do they have over me? But you, on the other hand, would care more about what the U.K. did, and I would care very much about what the U.S. did. So, like, I, Binance seems like it's weathered a lot of storms. I mean, they have weathered a lot of storms. They've been around a while. Um, I never, I never know what games actually being played there. There's been so many exchanges over the years that have been like sort of the long-term exchanges and then just suddenly die, particularly in China. Uh, OKCoin okay was, uh, was a big one. Binance has an awful lot of, uh, similar similarities to FTX. Like the BNB coin is essentially Binance liabilities and they have a lot of those on the books. And, um, that's very weird to me that in, in crypto, you can basically, print money uh, internally basically print your own liabilities and then hold them and then put them on your on your balance sheet as if it's uh as if it, it's worth a lot of money it's a very weird thing it's like it's issuing bonds that no one ever bought <laughs> like you didn't have to sell them you just get the you you get the value of the bonds because uh there's a market price for them and you're totally in charge of printing them for no reason so it's a very weird like liability system that's gone on here and developed over the years and I think there's a lot of systemic uh, systemic risk in the uh, in the liabilities that these companies are holding of themselves, and that's really strange. I don't know when the piper piper comes to pay. What, what is it? I don't know when I don't know when they're going to have to pay the piper. When yeah, it's the one. The yeah. yeah, I don't know when they're going to have to pay the piper, but at some point, I imagine that that there's going to be a massive uh, paying of the piper for all of those stupid risks that they're taking. Yeah. What do yeah. you think? You know, I kind of agree. I mean, to me, it's all been a bit circular. I think a lot of value was just magic from nowhere. Um, I think that, you know, I see a base logic in Bitcoin as a, you know, in the doom coiner sense and in the, um, as a as a last resort balancing agent or settlement system between frenemies, enemies, um, which I think is going to be increasing the case as as the um, international financial capital market gets more and more fragmented, we end up with this one world, two systems, you know, state. 
I don't think um, the IMF or the World Bank or the usual suspects are necessarily going to be uh, able to um, operate in that world. Bitcoin then becomes a clearinghouse between friend, like effectively enemies, um, and that's necessary for for keeping tabs on on value in a global system, regardless. Um, so that bifurcation, I think, justifies it. But that is a different argument to all this sort of, you know, air that has been developed through circular trading across all these joke tokens, in my opinion. Like a lot of them are just tokens. Um, tokens. Um, you know, it's 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 all it's none of that is positive sum. None 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 of it is really it's all gambling. It's just virtual gambling, as far as I'm concerned. So, and that these exchanges manifested to to facilitate that, and in so doing, undermined any principle of Bitcoin. Um, I, I I just think it's deeply ironic. I could see it coming from a million miles away, and um, and now is the sort of day of the day of reckoning. Um, I, th I think what's been interesting is watching this this market form uh, around uh, crypto generally, but Bitcoin in particular is that like the worst actors here are the ones that have made the most money. And I, I, I think that's really a very interesting lesson. But it's anybody. okay because they were effective altruists. They were effective altruists. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, is, it is a really interesting uh, paradigm. Like there is, no, uh, there is no alpha in being honest. Uh, there is no alpha in being good, it seems. Uh, it, in, in, instead, there is a lot of alpha in exploiting uh, ignorance and exploiting like government uh like but there's the, there is a which... sucker born every minute right and in a capitalist yeah, but, but, but but i I, di I didn't expect there to be this many suckers like i'm watching like the usps united states postal service uh file patents on blockchain voting systems and i'm watching like my government uh like delve deep into the the blockchain rhetoric and believe things and i'm hearing from people working in the government internally that every single department is having to combat programmers suggesting blockchain solutions for absolutely everything that they're trying to build. But it, um, it's all a function of human psyche because it's it's basically now we've come this the term gaslighting is relatively new. I, I mean it isn't new but it hasn't really been in vogue until recently and it's not it's rarely applied to finance but I think what happens is FOMO is basically gaslighting. It's it's the same phenomenon it's like when everyone is telling you x is brilliant and you're like okay well i better do x and you don't you lose sight of the like in a gaslighting situation you know this person is lying to you right and they're trying to to mess with your head and make you doubt yourself you know it's it's a it's a psychological operation well that happens, in every, that happens in every bull market too like we have a big a bunch of bitcoiners who peel off and will join and be like oh nfts they're very legitimate you know and, and largely it's a function of the fact that there's lots of money there, right? So like I, I've always advocated investing with irony, knowing that these things are all BS and then getting in, if you're gonna get in, know that and then get in with, with the irony, right? Uh, so that you can get out. Otherwise you end up in a, a Beanie Baby situation where you buy 12 of every Beanie Baby and then the market collapses and you have 12 of every Beanie Baby still. And, well, at least uh, you've got a Beanie Baby. What you find. That's so cute. Yeah, but they're six dollars, and you, you spent thousands and thousands of your of your family's money on them, you know. And uh, like, I I buy Beanie Babies actually for the reason, uh, this very specific reason. It's a good reminder to me that one should not uh, become particularly attached to those collectibles. 
um, things that you have in your house, whether it's art or anything else. You should just just be very willing to part with it for massive sums of money. If someone comes into your house and goes, that's a very interesting piece of art, and I'd like to buy it for a million dollars, do some brief research, find out if it's worth a lot more, uh, if suddenly that artist became famous, or if that person just wants to give you a million dollars. And if they do, then take it. Take it. Take it. Take, take it and run. <laughs> and and, and, if, and if, if what happens is your sale starts a fervor of that artist, uh, don't worry about it. Take your million dollars, put it in the market, and let it grow like a, a lot of money, You know, like a million bucks that you never would have had otherwise. Yeah, I think there is a lot to be said for that. But um, fundamentally, like just speaking about um, a sucker being born every minute, right? So this is... This is fundamental to a capitalist society. If you're going to have a free system, you have to have people have to go through that learning curve. And sadly, it's always going to be the younger generation that gets caught out. And, you know, so it's almost like a ritual. It's almost like an initiation into the markets. One of the reasons you have so many Ponzi schemes like coming out of uh, the former Soviet Union in the aftermath um is because they had no they had no institutional kind of knowledge or or, um legacy knowledge about how to operate in markets right so everyone was how banking worked like like literally uh when in ukraine in particular like uh or you russia as well mmm comes out and basically says we are a ponzi scheme and because the russians had so little trust in the banks and didn't really understand how banks worked at the time they thought that was a reasonable thing to put their money into and they did They put massive amounts of money into it. And uh, Mavrodi became phenomenally wealthy, prevented himself from being uh, arrested by joining Congress. And and there's, but this happened all throughout like that block. Uh, Albania is a good example. Uh, was 1996, 1995. Uh, I don't know what percentage of their economy was invested in Ponzi's, but it was something absurd, like 64% of their GDP or something. Yeah, and like look that. at Albania today. I mean, it's that Albania is one of the most sort of, dysfunctional former Soviet well, Union well, countries. Well, this started, well. this started uh, their civil war, right? When it all collapsed, the politicians were telling, like politicians were putting the logos of Ponzi schemes on their websites, the Ponzi's that they supported. And like, I, I just see a, a, a giant parallel here. I think mm-hmm. in the next, I think in the next bull market, if, if Bitcoin is lucky enough to be granted by the Lord Jesus Christ, another bull market, um, I think that we will see a massive adoption of these utter Ponzi's and I am afraid of how the unwinding will look because it's not going to be like just, uh, you know, FTX failing or Three Arrows Capital. Like there will come a point when entire countries are caught flat-footed buying shit coins. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. But I kind of think ultimately you'll end up with, you know, countries that can't afford to to trade Bitcoin will just issue their own CBDCs, which will become kind of shit-coiny in their own right. Um, we're coming out of a, out of an environment where you had do, do negative... You really that, or, yeah. or do you think that it's possible that those countries just start grabbing Tether and uh, sort of using using Tether instead of like uh, Euro dollars and stuff like that? No, I, I, think, um, I think there's going to be a fragmentation. So you will have... You see, the sovereigns want to contend they want sovereignty and they want to maintain control of their domestic currency systems, right? And the CBDC is an incredibly tempting thing because they offer huge control. In reality, they don't really um, structurally benefit anybody as far as I can see. They're just a, in their worst incarnation, they're a move towards full reserve banking. um, And in their, 
light touch incarnation they don't change anything because you'd have all these tiered structures it's really well, i've been made... asking people this question what is the difference between like let's let's run it through in america what's the difference between a cbdc and a, an account at the fed nothing i agree i think that's exactly what it is and yeah I, it's, I think it's, COVID the was it's it's that's why i've called it ghost banking it's basically state banking it's it's where the state like in in communist times or in china you know china had a lot of state banks but supposedly competing with each other but in reality everyone just has an account with the main national bank and that is it there's no competition in the market and the bank if it wants to deplatform you it can it has you know you have in this day and age without paper money i mean the the power is just phenomenal right and obviously the the, the western central banks are sort of saying well we wouldn't we wouldn't do that we'd have a mandate where you know universal bank we're actually doing doing this to help the unbanked because we don't think you know one of the problems is, is that the in the in the private commercial banking sector it, they don't bank anybody because who's not worth their while right and this means there's a huge unbanked population so we is as the central bank instead of printing money the way we used to which was a universal good we're going to provide cbdc's for everyone which basically means free bank accounts for people who can't afford them otherwise well, it's, right it's funny it's funny because like you know i think the way that people think of them working is you go to the wells fargo window and you give them your, your phone and then all of a sudden you have money on your phone but i don't think what people realize is the mechanism for that is the money has to go somewhere so it's going to be for at Wells Fargo, it's going to go on your phone, but it's not on your phone. It's at a database in the Fed, which means you have a Fed account. And then you're going to go somewhere else. The Fed, <coughs> sorry, the Fed is just an intermediary in that aspect. So the Fed has a, an account. It displays the account on your phone as if it's on your phone. And then you're going to go spend from the Fed account to another bank or a restaurant or something like that. But the only thing that's different here is that the intermediary is essentially the Fed. There's no reason yeah. it will ever be on a blockchain. It's more more a specifically, Josh, it's that the Fed is funding the um, provision of that account for somebody who is not worthy, like a, a conventional bank wouldn't be asked to um, to, to to bank them because they're never going to have enough money in their account to make it worthwhile, right? right. So it's a well, it's that's, a that's the thing. They'll just turn post offices into into branches. Yeah, that's exactly right, and um, and you and you see that. <laughs> You see that already here in the UK. I think the post office is is sort of already being used as a proxy for, um, you know, a lot of banks are shutting down their uh, their branches here in the UK because it's too costly. Not enough people go into branches these days. It's just not worth uh, operating them anymore. But every now and then you have like old biddies or you know just I don't people who need to go into a branch, and so the post office is now offering that service. So the bank the bank staff can then just pop into the post office and use it as a temporary office. So it's like a we work for banking. Um, and that's kind of the future of, of, of banking in the sense like the high touch services are going to have to be pooled amongst other, other, you know, providers because it just isn't cost efficient. So you'll just have a little window. Like when you go and rent a car and there's like 20 different providers in the same, you know, so that's, Airport, that's kind yeah. of where it's going. But um but ultimately, the CBDC, I don't think is, um, you know, going back to what we were saying, I don't think it's going to necessarily um, create, a, create a market for Bitcoin per se, because I do think um, domestic functional economies will ma maintain um, credibility with their populations. And the CBDCs, if they are mandated, 
mandated okay, um, they, they will probably be well used. Like Nigeria has a CBDC, it's not used at all. Everyone hates it, nobody trusts the government there. So in that sort of environment, I can totally see euro dollars or tethers or alternative stable coins being more um, sought after. But in a, in say the UK or in, in America or EU, I think I think that's going to be harder to you know. But where where Bitcoin comes in is with the exchange between say Russia or China. If and when China like loses, if we go to war with China then that will be the no man's land where you have to have a no man's land because at the end of the day, even in the Cold War and even in World War II, we were still doing occasional trade with our enemies, um, funneling enough. So that's where the potential is, I think. Given, I mean, like, given that the, the, the Fed has always avoided having bank accounts uh, at the Fed, that's been sort of a tenet of American uh, like banking, is that the Fed doesn't have accounts. Yeah. What, what happens, do you think, in a world where the Fed issues that sort of precedent and actually brings accounts on board? Because I think that I think that's really like bad for banking innovation. Not that yeah, no, it's terrible. It'll, but that seems like it, a terrible idea. Well, it'll crowd out the conventional banks. Banks will have to. It's basically going to create a full reserve system, which is what 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 China has kind of done by stealth in. Does in, it? Does it expose the United States government to huge amounts of systemic risk? I mean, like I see like Freddie and Fannie, the American government taking on mortgages, for example, as a huge like source yeah, of risk for the government. It, de it really depends how, how, how adopted it is, right? So if people decide to keep all their savings and what, what the central banks, because the central banks don't want you to have all your savings in them because then like FDIC goes out the window and you know that they actually want some risk taking with your money because everybody just hoards it at the at the central bank right then you won't get any rehypothecation or lending it'll be it'll make it incredibly expensive for the banks to borrow um and fund themselves so what they're really talking about is that they would what they would have limit limits on these accounts so you wouldn't be able to keep more than ten thousand dollars in your in your cbdc because they see it more as a day-to-day -day payment system right rather than a savings vehicle as soon as you start saving money you have to put it into the bank so the fed literally would be like temporary daily spending accounts essentially yeah so it would be and and and, and then the question is like the data side of it like how much would they know um because there is a paradox if they're going to be a universal system then they have to bank everybody that means banking your mum your kids it means banking the drug dealers it yeah. means banking everybody like you cannot have a reason to unbank someone the whether fascists. they're a felon huh the fascists the nazis the fascists the nazis if you're universal you have to be universal right but this goes against the principles behind aml and kyc right so in in the conventional space you banks are you know continuously deplatforming people who have dodgy um, accounts so there's a continuous you know eventually you get frozen out of every bank and you have to use some dodgy ukrainian bank or whoever like to be back is it, right? is it inevitable in this case then that the fed becomes a giant money launderer well this is the thing and so to they, there's no way around it there is a paradox and so the way they've justified banking the, the like the world's worst people 
is they're going to limit. So they're going to put different limits. And if you want to be totally anonymous, then you can only bank like a hundred pounds a week or whatever. If you want, if you're going to provide, um, you know, so, so if you provide more ID, then you can have, uh, you know, a couple of thousand. And then the obvious thing is, is that the criminals who use it for criminal activity, well, the Fed, you know, that they'll be in cahoots with the FBI or whoever, and they'll use it as a giant dragnet to capture all the all the felons in theory. But then none of the felons will use it. So, um, and also the chances of like um, the police or the FBI actually following up on every single dodgy transaction are next to zero because it's just well, a, there's just too many of them. Do, do the felons not use it? I mean, the felons will have to use it if they get rid of cash that Ken Rogoff wants. Well, if you if you ban cash at the same time, yes, then they would have to, or or you would end up using proxies. But this is when you get the battle of the CBDCs. So one of the big concerns is that sovereigns will be able to compete with each other. So, like, say you're in America and you don't want the Fed coming in and arresting you, so you might be inclined to use the Chinese CBDC, right, to settle your accounts. And if it's a good store of value and the Chinese are doing a good job of of maintaining that you probably would rather have the chinese government getting your data than the fed because the chinese at the end of the day would have to invade america to take your assets right well so given that they're cbdc's you'd think that like china would be willing to settle them right so like if if you're uh if you have an american cbdc you could probably actually just put them in a chinese bank in the chinese fed they'd be happy to take that yeah, so so vice versa, the Chinese might, or the, but the Chinese wouldn't allow the Fed to offer its um, coin in in China, and because they can control the internet over there, then and actually, if, if for example, the Nigerian CBDC, I couldn't download it here in the UK. So if you were coming from a UK um, account, if you didn't have a resident, um, you know, uh, some sort of residency in Nigeria, you couldn't download it, right? So. It was for residents, Nigerian residents only. Um, but this again becomes problematic because think of the US. What qual- so so all the migrants that come through who are being processed, well, you have to give them the ability to 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 get um, these CBDCs, right? So does it mean you're a resident? What about tourists? You know, tourists aren't residents, but they have to have the means. So it becomes like. You know, and you you will be able to game the system, or maybe it'll get so sophisticated that you can't. You know, I see it as like the return of of um, capital controls and foreign exchange controls, because no doubt there will be massive restrictions in terms of who can access the local CBDC when and where. Um, and yeah, so when you're when you, if I'm a, as a Brit, I come to the US and I need to have my dollars on a CBDC just to spend them um then yeah i can i will only be allowed to do it when i'm i'm on you know on a us network maybe or i don't i don't know but then you know what happens if you leave um you've still got balances well then you'll have to come i don't know it'll be interesting what they do when some when some hacks as ubi will be end up being the way they bring cbdc's in Um, of course josh like at that point you know you the banks will be able to compete because the banks well, the banks won't be able to p- compete on privacy because they have to comply with KYC AML, but they will be able to 
you know, offer better terms. So if you hold balances and use their payment networks, you'll probably be rewarded with higher interest rates in, in a positive interest rate environment, right? Or they'll offer, they will try to get, they'll try and woo your balances away from the Fed. Right. I mean, we do, have, it's interesting because like as the Fed raises interest rates also, uh, we're, it, it, I think banking is going to be weird. I've, I've heard many people talking about how like, Americans can no longer save in savings accounts and stuff like that. And as the interest rates go higher, it just seems like that 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 that, that comes back. Yeah, I, th I think I think absolutely that comes back. Now we're normalizing, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because zero interest rates were behind a lot of the excess um, in the market, and fundamentally, well, this gives us so much like a springboard, right? Like there's finally like we can like allow uh, the springboard here to like you know exist we have a little bit more cushion in the economy um when these rates are higher to actually do things we need like lower interest rates to respond to problems which is something that yeah. we can't do at the moment when you're at zero like i mean you can go negative i guess but i i really kind of admire the fact that the united states refused to go negative and that uh they just stayed kind of at zero until uh until they couldn't and then they just started raising real slow well not that slow it's one of the it's one very, of the very fast. right. fastest, it's very fast. fastest rate high cycles of of all time. But, but um, it's been remarkable that the economy hasn't tanked as a result. Like it's really done a decent job of holding up. Yeah, because frankly, you know, we need to encourage productivity, and nothing like higher interest rates to do that. Because productivity is a function of needs today, and if you, you know, in Necessity is the mother of invention, right? So in a high interest rate environment, you can't afford to just punt around and 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 and, and take these long bets and 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 hope that in ten years' time Elon Musk delivers Tesla cars or whatever. You've got to like. Way, while we were doing this, uh, GBTC hit eleven dollars and seventeen cents at some point during the podcast. It's so crazy. this is crazy. It's crazy to so watch. So from where? Where where was it this morning? Uh, it wasn't. Like nine fifty, nine eighty. Huh? This morning, so it's, it's being pumped. Maybe you're responsible for. Maybe your kinky portfolio tip there was what prompted. Well, you know, it's, it's all it's ten of our like, viewers to go. When, when it hit like forty eight percent, I think MSNBC and a bunch of other places were like featuring this as like a really interesting trade um, because of, of the forty eight percent discount. Like a lot of Bitcoiners are, are themselves not taking advantage of it because they don't trust GBTC. It's not Bitcoin, right? It's like an IOU. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I get that that violates some of the fundamental principles of like holding your own money. But I think people don't quite understand like my position in particular. Like I think that Bitcoin serves a function uh, in, in much the same way you do. It's good end of the world money. Um, and, and maybe it will be good money for not just the end of the world at some point. I don't know. But it's good end of the world money uh, in the way that gold was thought to be good end of the world money. And uh, and I don't think you really like absolutely have to care as much about sovereignty until, uh, until that moment when the hot potato is uh, cooked, if you will. So like, you know, I, I think I think for me, this was a risk that I was willing to take because I don't think we're quite at like end of the world scenario yet where I have to be like in possession of the coins in order to uh, in order to like, you know, take advantage of them. So this is just a market trading vehicle for like fiat type trading, which is yeah. interesting. 
Well, you've done well. That sounds good. There are two things that um, are worth just flagging before we um, finish off. Because to, remember, today we're being tight. And by the way, our New Year's resolution is that we are going to be doing this ritually every Thursday, unless we're on holiday. Yeah? Yeah. We're going to try and do this live every Thursday, 7 o'clock. We'll hopefully have a guest. And if we don't have a guest, we'll review 7 o'clock UK time. 7 two my time. Yes, Your time is what? Seven, 4 o'clock? Two. two o'clock oh my god um yeah so we we will review um what was what's been happening and key talking points but uh two two other things first of all Ch chat gpt have you been looking at that yeah yeah it's i, I I've, I've had a lot of fun with it it's interesting chat gpt is uh fun to play with and it's it's phenomenally interesting how far i think a lot of the ai stuff has come like this is very i've heard a lot of people saying things like uh, lawyers are having ChatGPT uh, run first drafts of uh, of stuff that they want. Coders are saying that like they'll have ChatGPT do a first like attempt at code, and uh, so there there's a lot of little industries where I think people are seeing the potential where ChatGPT is going to replace some like low level workers. Yes, except for me, it's very much like those AI pictures where it all looks very good from far away and very authoritative and an excellent quality. And then, and then when like, you look the nose. Yeah. And then you look closer and you're like, oh my God, this is actually riddled with weird shit and errors. Well, the programmers the programmers I'm I'm hearing are saying that like it does a really good first pass and that uh as long as you're not asking it to do really complicated things, its first pass on the code is is actually decent. It definitely needs to be edited and cleaned up, but like they're getting a lot of stuff that would have otherwise taken them like quite a bit of time to like get. I can see how it. like formulaic stuff can work with ChatGPT, but um, the problem from as like any journalist trying to use it is um, it's just riddled with mistakes. And and the but the biggest problem is that it speak it, it presents itself as being super authoritative, and you don't it, you know again it's this kind of gaslighting like. No, this I'm telling you the truth, and it's absolute because it's so like the the prose is so um, eloquent and high quality that it delivers bullshit very convincingly, and that is one of the problems. Um, and also, I was uh, two questions I have with ChatGPT. One is, what is its feedstock? Because as far as I can see, it's mainly English, but it pushes out multilingual, so it's monocultural. Um, it's basically being taught. The only culture that matters. <laughs> well yes and no i mean it'll be feed i don't think it makes political kind of decisions right so it'll be being fed off um in your case you, you should be upset that it's being fed off uh, more left-wing views as well as right-wing views presumably let's have a right-wing chat gpt i don't really care about right-wing versus left-wing I, I just think the left right now is crazy right so but chat gpt is still going to be learning from that yeah, yeah, so, well, no, so it's, it's crazy like it's it's like very woke so anyway, <laughs> the, the point is, is that um, once you start like messing with the inputs and saying you can't do this and you can't do that, it's, it isn't natural. It's not really a human phenomenon because it's 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 got it's like partly lobotomized. Right. Um, the second thing is its energy footprint is massive. And that energy footprint, from what I understand, is going to go up and up and up. Um, and the due to the computations per search you know and it's not gonna it looks like a very challenging business model so i think uh microsoft just stepped up to offer 10 billion to it but they will be um i think the terms of the contract range huh are they offsetting their carbon footprint 
don't know about that. But what I think is going on is at Microsoft, because the cloud services are now, cloud services were to a degree being propped up by a lot of blockchain stuff, as and when blockchain stuff pops, and I think it is popping a bit now, um, they're looking for a new market. And Microsoft obviously owns Azure, and I think um, it's kind of, there's a circularity if they if they're investing in in what's it called generative AI because it knows it can service generative and AI with its cloud services. So there's a bit of a vendor financing loop going on there, in my opinion. And then the um, the other point is with its energy footprint. Like you've got to consider like Ethereum has just gone to this massive effort to um, collapse its uh, energy footprint, but here yeah, we've got GPT. Like coming in with even more um, energy consumption, so you're not hearing anyone talking about that. It's interesting to me that crypto gets so much hate for the energy footprint, but GPT three, like nobody is talking about it. Crypto's filled with energy pirates. Uh, did you? Can we? Can we real quick discuss Davos yet, or is that something that we can't? Yeah, that was today? the last thing that I wanted yes. to talk about because that is what's happening over the weekend. It starts next week. The great and the good are all going to Switzerland. The great and the good. Yes. Is that what they call themselves? No, that's what I call them. That's <laughs> um, yeah. So Davos is beginning. Who's going to be there? I think the star. Let me just put up a banner. What's happening at Um, So I think Idris Elba is going to be there. Mm -hmm. Henry Kissinger is going to be there. I don't know if he's going to be there physically or in virtual mode. Welcome to Henry Kissinger's discussion. Olaf uh, Schultz will be there doing a keynote. There's a disinformation panel. Uh, being and headed Brian by Brian Stelter. <laughs> I do find that interesting. So uh, that's going to be a big thing for them. Um, disinformation. You know, why is it that they cannot see that Brian Stelter was the biggest purveyor of disinformation ever? <laughs> it's like him and uh, Rachel Maddow. Well, that's a question that should be put to the panel. Now, the other interesting thing about Davos this year is that usually they make their agenda and their scheduling public, but there's no sign of it on their website. And if you look further, you'll realize they now have three subscription plans. So the whole... whole... Tell tell our audience how Davos works. So you have multiple subscription plans, which means that you get to enter different levels of hell. So if you for real-life Davos, which is basically like real-life Twitter... You have, um, so it's the platform where everyone is welcome. Klaus is very clear. Klaus Schwab, the founder of WEF, he wants, he, you know, key principle is neutrality and having everyone there. Um, so, but you have to pay. So in in, in the push, end, if you don't get invited, if you don't get invited by the Davos, like the WEF, WEF doesn't consider you important enough to get a free ticket. You have to pay for your ticket. So there's a, there is a natural skew towards the rich and people can afford to pay the ridiculous cost of the ticket. But in theory, if you have the money, anyone can go, which is why, you know, for a while, like I, last time I went, you know, the ripple people were all there. I do believe Brad Garlinghouse is on a panel uh, on a crypto panel. Did, did, did he buy that? Do you think, did he buy the speaking on the panel or did he uh, get asked? Unknown because this is the other thing, like despite being an organization that is, 
preaching about transparency and stakeholder capitalism and all that sort of ethical capitalism, it's very non-transparent. So sure. we don't know who is there, like what deals they've done, how much money, you know, have they bought their positions on the panel or not? I don't know. Um, and weather counts are very, very, I mean, they do pu publish an annual report, but there's not much granular detail about anything. So we know they are charging, you know, I think last I looked, you know, they had like revenue of about 350 uh, million last, no, billion, was it bit? No, it can't be, but million, million, it was million. So it wasn't even that much. <laughs> um, 350 million um, in 2022, that's the end of year of June. Um, so how it works is that there are tiered, there are tiers. If you've got a white badge, you're top tier. You get to go everywhere. And then there's probably a secret other tier that I don't know about because it's so secret. It probably has like a hologram on it or something. And then you go to the super duper off balance Jesus, sheet. That's where Satan lives in the ice. Yeah, that's like the secret parties that nobody, unless you're you like enter, anointed. That's uh, you enter in, and Klaus Schwab is half stuck in the ice and he's gnawing on Judas. Yeah, but I don't know about that. All I know officially is the white one, and then there's different colors for different grades, and the media has not um if you've got a media pass you don't get to go to the call center you go unless you're unless you're a white badge member you don't get to go in you just sit in the media zone and then there are the hangers on who are they don't have badges at all they don't get into the so they, they basically take over the resort and they put up a perimeter a wall no less believe it or not and then they police the wall to keep the riffraff out so you can't get in and, and every time you go in and out you have to have your bag screened and it's like ridiculous security you know the sort of security you definitely don't see in mexico <laughs> on the border wall there and then um they um the hangers on are just they they have their challenger fringe events um and it's the piano bar and, and the Belvedere. And then the hotels have their own events. They're sort of affiliated loosely with Davos, with WEF, but they're their own thing. So, so it's a, it's an entire cottage industry of of um, hangers on and and sideshows and you know whatever. Um, but now now we have this added element where you can get virtual status because obviously with COVID they went online. And now they're doing a hybrid where they are streaming all the conferences and you can, for like some ridiculous sum, like 90 euros a, a month, you, you can get access to the top tier, um, or view all the panels. Um, and then there's a second tier, which is $30 a month, 30 euros or something a month. And then there's the free one, which gets you nothing. So I just, I thought it was quite funny because it's kind of emulating what, what Elon is doing with Twitter. So now you can buy your, your virtual like WEF, you know, theoretically you can be a WEF member, but not really. Oh. 90 bucks or whatever it is a month. Many circles of hell. Yeah. Are you going to go? Are you going to buy a pass? I can't this year. No, you're not. Are we talking we about can't. Year, Were you invited? Year, yeah. Me? Yeah. Uh, I got, you know, I got off the phone with Klaus Schwab a couple of weeks ago. I was like, you know, Klaus, I just can't go this year. Just not this year, but maybe next. You know? Well, the big, the other big question is who takes over after class because he's like in his in his mid eighties now, so probably it's unfair. Another German. Well, it'll probably be his wife, Hilde, Hilda. Um, she was one of the co-founders, so she does, you know, and all his children she's work there. She's got to be young. No, no, she's old. She she was one of the co-founders. It was founded in nineteen seventy one, and it had. She was, um, she was eight. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> she's Very she's smart, precocious eight year old. I don't know exact age, but I, I would suspect she's in her seventies. Um, How is she going to take it? Like, so you're going to give an eight-year-old? What is this like? The, the, the well, this is why it's it's becoming an episode of Succession because um, nobody knows, and and there's a lot of into the back uh, room, and they're going to burn sage if if they select a person. Well, like, we don't know. Like, it could be weird. It's such a weird organization, and I think the weirdest thing about Davos is after Davos, here in the U.S., you have all of these CEOs coming from there to here and repeating weird talking points that like are super weird, like things that you never heard. The stakeholder capitalism stuff is a great example when you have like people coming back from there and all of a sudden you have like dozens of CEOs talking about stakeholder capitalism and how excited they are about it. And how do you like, understand, I'm interested to know, what do you understand stakeholder capitalism to be? Uh, stakeholder capitalism, uh, well, generally capitalism it means that you as an entrepreneur or an owner of a business is that your your sole goal is to return maximum profits. Stakeholder capitalism, in my assessment, is this essentially this understanding that you take all stakeholders into account and sort of become a self-regulatory engine of all of your negative externalities, right? So uh, you you don't you don't necessarily act in the best uh, the best interest of shareholders you rather in, you act in the best interest of stakeholders in varying degrees and the way that i see it working out is that generally companies pick stakeholders that are convenient for their ends and they act in the best interest of those stakeholders at any given moment uh, and if it's not convenient then a different set of stakeholders yeah, so basically, it's it's more altruistic capitalism to some degree, <laughs> considering all the multi, you know. But it, this whole idea of doing what's good for the collective, not just for um, your own company, um, and having like your own employees involved in in the um, in the agenda and and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's very synonymous. Stupid. Well, it's also the fundamental kind of economic principle behind like Italian fascism back in yeah. 1930s it was a similar similar principle of like it's very it's very dumb like the the idea that come that, that come i mean like you have there are companies around the world that are owned by uh their employees and that do just fine right rolex is a good example right uh essentially rolex is owned by the employees it's a different type of company i don't know exactly how it's run i don't know who makes ultimate decisions if it's every decision is voted on or if they have like a de facto leader I don't know exactly how that works, but there are companies that it works in. Um, I don't know that I would call that stakeholder capitalism, um, but it just seems to me that when you when you take you'd away call it Web three. Web three, yeah. <laughs> when you take away the only it's Web three, the like the digital version of stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, in some ways, and I, hmm. I think what's interesting is like in my view, the the role of government is to manage externalities, right? and to uh, find companies for outputting externalities to the degree that it like essentially zeroes out those externalities. So a company can then like, you can have a true assessment of costs of a company, right? That's I think the role of government. The role of a company is to find as many holes in the universe as possible and return as much capital to shareholders as possible. That's the role of a company and that's it, nothing else. Yes, and I think this is a good point to finish off on because I've got to go soon. But the um, that's that is fundamentally where, like, the last ten years where we've, in my opinion, been going wrong. Because as soon as you put something else other than 
profitability at the center of a um, com company mission, it all like there's a so much subjectivity over what is good and what is bad. Like the WEF mission statement is, you know, improving the state of the world. But according to who? Like, you know, the, 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 the fascists are going to think very differently about how to improve the state of the world to the liberals or the, you know, there's no, you know, so that's why there's a sort of consensus machine going on at, at, um, at Davos. But it's, it's not reconcilable because you end up with just blur, like this massive amoeba of nothingness. But the other thing um, with respect to not having profit at the center of your um, mission statement is that you can be, you know, any Tom, Dick or Carrie can convince you to to waive profitability for X, Y. It, it basically opens you up to these big cons, these long cons, because it's Wasn't like the ESG, the ESG stuff, right? Well, ESG to me has exactly the same footprint as crypto it's the same concept it's like if you if you you know the principle of esg is that if everybody embargoes or decides to divest from x and then allocate to this company that may not be profitable but it will be in like 20 years time you it's a belief system and it's not economic to do that or it's not going to make you money but you can you believe in the cause and if you believe hard enough um the the act of everyone doing it together and acting as a collective will give you short-term gains through capital um reallocation right so it's the same principle of number go up it's just like if enough of us pull money from the vice stocks and the bad fossil fuel companies if enough of us do it then we will get the upside it's about having your cake and eat it so esg it's, it's features, for liberals yeah, but it, it preaches that you can have your cake and eat it. You can have your returns and still invest in a non-profitable company because you will be rewarded through capital gains purely because everyone is agreeing to do that together, right? Um, but of course, what's happened with ESG is that no one can agree. No one can agree on what is a fundamental ESG value. That's why you get greenwashing and that's why there's so much murkiness. And then when you really deconstruct it, what has Elon Musk done? Well, he's just exploited ESG to make... He he's told a story about being green and, you know, rightly or whatever, wrongly, he has delivered to some degree. But for a long time, he wasn't delivering. And that made that overvaluation. He benefited. He was a beneficiary of ESG because it made him the the, um, the richest man in the world. Right. And now Briefly. and now he's taking that money that was given to him by ESG and he's decided to deploy it for his own effective altruism. Right. Which is Twitter. To buy, yeah, that yeah. is. <laughs> there was a Twitter file today, by the way, which we didn't talk about, but we'll have to reserve all this. I think there should but, be a but, 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 but just to finish the point, the, mm -hmm. the footprint is the same because if you are an ESG investor, you buy companies to, you either divest from companies to make their funding capital go, um, cost of ca uh, funding go up, or you buy them to influence them from the inside by messing up, you know, voting out their board, you know, and, and, and putting in the people that can affect change that's internally. That's well, true. that's exactly what Elon did. It was the, it was, it was the biggest sort of ESG move of all time. And of course, that's why the woke brigade are freaking out about it because that he's using their, the same tricks they use for his own gain. And that fundamentally, is this is where capitalism comes in, is that in a free market, all these embargoes and, and uh, collective action things, well, anyone can play you at your own game. <laughs> so the it's big, not- The biggest but... beneficiary of ESG really is Elon. And uh, the result yeah. is that now he owns Twitter which might unravel a lot of the ESG stuff. 
ironically if he actually makes it profitable and um and he makes tesla profitable esg goes out the window because esg only makes sense if you're not profitable and remember like this is why the drug trade continues on like drugs don't get funded by any investors but it's a hugely profitable business so it keeps going right so no boycott can boycott um you know there is no there is no boycott of the drug drug industry that can do anything because their cost of financing they don't give a shit because they've got huge profits so if you if you're profitable like esg can't touch you is the is my point all right i think that's it for today everybody um we you know it's they're short shows but i think we yeah isabel's right we're going to be doing this every week now uh actually build up a little bit of momentum have something for you guys regularly and then you know if you guys really like it maybe we'll do daily yeah god that would be crazy no i don't think i can handle it'd be it'd be a lot of fun so like uh we'll go over the news and stuff like that a little bit more organized i think in the future um but yeah i think this would be uh this will be fun we keep promising it but uh this time we're actually doing it because it's been just a little bit too long uh the holidays through in a mix we didn't do like a holiday show we were planning on one but we didn't even get to that so um you know i think many people are sick the rhythm here what's that too many people were sick too many people i was sick and bronchial yeah Yeah. well on that cheery note thank you for joining me and um yeah we'll see you next week i am ending the broadcast now and it always takes a little a few minutes so i'm just gonna